Hello everyone, this is Rising Above Shadows of Abuse, the weekly podcast for anyone currently experiencing trauma, pain, shame, guilt, anger, and wants to eradicate these negative emotions. I'm your host, Grace Opa. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. Rising Above Shadows of Abuse podcast with Grace Opa. Allegations of racism have been frequently leveled at the police and in schools, despite persistent denials to the contrary. The word that repeatedly appears in almost every incident is institutional, reinterpreted from its original definition to mean deeply ingrained that it becomes ordinary, historic or culturally acceptable behavior, lacking in awareness or in its most arrogant form, completely ignored as esteemed to be irrelevant. The events surrounding the child cues incident that occurred at the Hackney Academy School has been extensively reported in the national and international media. In March 2020, a 15-year-old schoolgirl waiting to sit an exam was suspected of possessing cannabis after a teacher smelt the substance. A search of the girl's bag, blazer, scarf and shoes by school staff revealed that she possessed no illegal drugs. The school's safeguarding officer then called the local branch of the Metropolitan Police and four officers arrived at the school shortly afterwards. The suspect, who was black and spotted dreadlocks, was taken to the medical room and was asked to strip naked in front of two female officers. Despite being on her period, she was told to remove her sanitary towel, bend over and spread her buttocks and cuffs so she could be internally searched by the officers. She was then told to put back on the same dirty sanitary towel and return to the exam. At no point was another adult member of the staff from the school in attendance and neither was the girl's mother informed of the incident or that her daughter was to be stripped naked and searched by police officers. Again, during this second and more intrusive search, no drugs or illegal substances were found on the girl. This brief is taken from a 35-page report prepared by the Local Child Safeguarding Practice Review, LCSPR, into the incident at an academy school in Hackney, North London, which when read in its entirety, makes for quite shocking reading. Neither the school nor the police are described in a positive light, and that's expressing it politely. Both, both institutions are revealed to be insensitive, arrogant, uncaring, and thoughtless. Nowhere in the report are there expressions of concern for the physical and mental well-being of the schoolgirl. Only an inference that both organizations were complying with their own preconceived expectations in their respective roles. Both the school and the Met Police have subsequently issued an apology to the girl and her family. It begs the question, just what was going through the minds of the school staff and the police officers when initially confronted with this suspicion regarding the smell of a substance? Why was the girl's mother not informed that her daughter had been suspected of possessing a controlled substance and was going to be stripped naked and searched by police officers? Why was no adult from the school in attendance when the girl was searched? Why did the police officers decide that it was perfectly acceptable to force the schoolgirl to strip in front of them with no other responsible adult present? These are very serious flaws that took place in what should be a safe environment for children and undertaken by professionals who should have flagged up these glaring infringements to basic human rights before they even occurred. 
None of these obvious issues, nor the short, medium, and long-term effects on this 15-year-old schoolgirl appear to have been considered at all, according to the LCSPR's review, that she has experienced a traumatic incident and undoubtedly suffered harm, and that both the school and the police were culpable of exposing her to undignified, humiliating, and degrading treatment is a devastating indictment and complete betrayal of the guiding principles of both organizations. Chagiu's family go further in their criticism. She was racially profiled, ordered to remove her sanitary towel, made to expose her private parts, isolated and not given water, nor permitted to use the toilet. Since the incident, she is stressed, traumatized, has become introverted and is self-harming. In other words, her whole life has been catastrophically upended and even with mental health treatment and therapy, there is serious concern that the devastating experience she has suffered will have an adverse effect on her future. The review also points to the inconsistencies in the accounts of the incident between school and police, who said and did what and when and where, as if both organizations were far more concerned with protecting their own interests and reputation than the humiliation suffered by Child Q. The case of Child Q is by no means an isolated incident. According to a recent article by Open Democracy, being strip-searched is a common occurrence for many under-18s. Thousands of children in London have been forced to undergo the humiliating and dehumanizing practice in recent years, according to data released last month under Freedom of Information Law. Research carried out by Tom Kempt, a criminology researcher at Nottingham University, found 172,093 sweep searches were carried out by the Met between 2016 and 2021. An alarming 9,088 of those were on children, including 2,360 under the age of 16. Some 35 were 12-year-olds or younger. He also noted that 57,733, that is 33.5% of all strip searches in the past five years were on black people, despite the fact that only 13% of Londoners are black. The Child Q Safeguarding Report details 25 strip searches of children in Hackney in 2021. Of those, nothing was found on 22 of the children, revealing how ineffective strip searches are and begging the question as to what the police were actually looking to find. These figures reveal that the practice is so common that it amounts to state-sanctioned sexual assault on children by adults who hold positions of power. It doesn't take a great deal of sensitivity to understand that being stripped and searched by unknown adults is bound to be a traumatic and distressing experience for a child. If the same degrading actions were conducted by any other adult on a child, it would be a case of straightforward abuse. The perpetrator will be persecuted and sentenced. Yet, it appears that the police can undertake these intimate examinations without recourse to any answerable oversight. The case of Child Q, as the LCSPR's review infers, is yet another incident that illustrates exactly how young black youth are perceived by those in positions of authority, what amounts to an institutionalized strategy based on the adultification of young black lives. Numerous incidents such as that experienced by Child Q are identified as part of a wider trend of police and schools in Hackney and other mostly inner city areas that police are routinely established in some schools has become the norm in recent years due to the increase in knife crime. Yet, as often been noted, this policy is selective and discriminatory and does not appear common practice in public schools like Eton and Harrow. For many years, there has been widespread criticism 
that Hackney in particular has been in the forefront of attempts to marketize education by the conversion of failing council-run schools into academies and the zero-tolerance education strategy of the strict authoritarian enforcement of rules and regulations. There had been what can be described as punitive punishments regimes used in a number of London academic schools to discipline children, including two-hour detentions for talking out of place, bad attitude, hugging or wearing the wrong socks, to the story of one girl who was repeatedly sent home from a hackney school because her natural Afro hair was deemed too big. Child Q may have been selected for punishment to set an example to other peoples, an approach intended to instill an old-fashioned sense of discipline, respect for authority and other adults. This is an attitude that is retrograde and probably had the opposite effect than the one intended. In this context, it is instructive to see what academic schools actually are and define their place in the plethora of types of schools within the country. Since 2016, the government has acquired all schools rated inadequate to become academies. Academies employ the staff and have trustees who are responsible for the performance of the academies in the trust. Trusts might run a single academy or a group of academies. Academies receive funding directly from the government and are operated by trusts, which are non-for-profit companies. They have more control over how they operate. For example, they do not have to follow the national curriculum and can set their own term times. A key plank of the government school strategy under which high-performing schools in each trust help the struggling ones improve. To many observers of this country's archaic education system, the actions of teachers in the case of Child Q are reflective of those in inner city environments. Academy schools are often run along business lines as a corporate organization with an administrative structure more redolent of a corporation with layers of management strata than an educational establishment devoted to learning. To many critics, Education is less of a virtue for the staff employed than the opportunity to emulate the structures of a business under the guise of promoting academic opportunities for the product, in this instance, the students. There is entrenched institutionalized racism, misogyny and homophobia within police forces due in part to an almost unquestioning reliance on outdated stereotypes particularly in relation to young people and the ethnic minorities. There is a widely held perception that the police are unable to reform due to the ingrained bias towards sections of the community who are treated with suspicion, despite no evidence that they are in any way committing criminal activities. Conversely, persistent offenders who account for vastly majority of criminal offenses in a given forces area are widely known to the police and are therefore afforded reasonable attention the lack of wide-ranging reforms within the police force and the deeply acknowledged influence of tradition highlights one of the reasons for the police's reluctance to move away from a reliance on institutionalized stereotypes when dealing with any aspects of civil society that can generally be classified in the category of minority. That basically refers to people who aren't defined as white, middle class and ordinary. Ordinary being defined as someone who doesn't attract the attention of police officers in the course of their everyday lives and therefore wouldn't warrant a second glance.
These definitions are based on generations of inherited policing policy, often responding to the basest or laziest reactionary impulses. In other words, policing by institutionalized regressive instincts. Many aspects of today's Metropolitan Police Force will be instantly recognizable to Robert Peel, who originally founded the institution in 1829, based on the two principles of its civil nature and policing by consent. Within the next 30 years, the entire United Kingdom has established constabularies based on the same principles by following the examples established by the Met first in cities and then into countrywide forces, a pattern that exists to this day. Although some regional forces have amalgamated with adjacent ones and the eight police forces of Scotland merged in 2013 to form Police Scotland, many regional forces, some quite small, are still organized by county. For example, Dorset, with a population of less than 780,000, still retains its own force, even though neighboring forces have amalgamated over the past few decades. Whatever their current regional or metropolitan status, all police forces in the UK are inherently steeped in tradition and independent from the prevailing winds of change. As successive Home Secretaries have found to their cost when proposing even minor reforms to an established system, put bluntly, the government of the day need the police more than the police need the government. Unlike 50 or 60 years ago, police officers are now more likely to be black or Asian, female and gay, yet the institutionalized prejudicial traits persist. The majority are still white, straight, and male, and it is the regressive attitudes of this majority that persist to the present day. If black police officers are subjected to racism, gay officers to homophobic comments, and women used as objects of sexist and misogynistic abuse, what's to stop the same perpetrators abusing the position of power? over ordinary members of the public who are perceived to be less worthy of respect and dignity by police officers, who are more likely to be white, male, and straight. The bad apple in the barrel trope is often trundled out when a police officer is charged or disciplined for misconduct or criminal activity. But the reality is that there are a number of bad apples as they feed off and encourage each other, either in person or via exchanges on social media, which has the effect of perpetuating retrogressive, negative, offensive, and often dangerous entrenched attitudes. Some of the recent actions and attitudes expressed online by seven police officers are both insensitive and offensive. Here are just four examples from the past years involving officers from the Metropolitan Police. That they can jest, ape, and taunt women's rights campaigner Patsy Stevenson on social media without reprimand from their superiors speaks volumes about officers' accountability when they have power and influence not available to any other individual or organization. Seven Met Police Officer Wayne Cousins was reportedly nicknamed the rapist by his colleagues because he made women feel uncomfortable. Two police officers were convicted of taking photographs and selfies of murdered sisters Reba, Henry, and Nicole Smallman for their own amusement. 
and sharing them in two WhatsApp groups, derogatorily referring to the victims as dead birds. One of these groups was called the A-Team, which included 41 police officers, and the other was entitled COVID Cons. The four victims of serial killer Stephen Port were all young gay men, and even though there was an obvious pattern to their death, the investigating police force failed to notice this until the victims' families brought it to their attention. In all four of these disconnected incidents, the officers involved initially expressed an arrogant air of denial and impunity. One of the most disquieting aspects revealed in the Child Q case, and depressingly not for the first time, is how police officers are permitted to remain in post whilst facing allegations of misconduct and in the interim often promoted. In some incidents, in what may be perceived as more serious allegations of misconduct, no disciplinary action is taken any further forward after an initial investigation and the officer remains in the force. The frequency with which this perceived culture of reward occurs instills in the public perception that the force impulsively closes ranks into a sealed bubble to protect itself at the expense of those outside of it. This self-protection process creates either unintentionally or by design an uneasy feeling in the minds of sections of society who, after all, are taxpayers whose precepts pay for the police that they are citizens come a distant second to the internal interests of a public service that supposedly exists to act and represent all of society. For years, if not decades, Unconscious bias has been a systematic problem that has been allowed to proliferate unchecked with police forces across the country. The insular environment of policing has undoubtedly helped foster this attitude to a large extent, but so too has institutional reluctance to recognize the fundamental social changes that has occurred within society over the past few decades. The police service had often remained aloof from this cultural shift, whereas every other aspect of society has had to unambiguously accept and comply with them, because in most cases it is the law of the land and it is the police who enforces those laws, and therein lies the rub. What can be done to protect children from abuse by those who are there to protect and support them? In an ideal world, it should be necessary for parents and guidance to even consider that their children's rights should need to be protected because supposedly adequate laws and safeguards are in place and have been for years, sometimes decades. But we don't live in an ideal world and children are still subject to abuse, violations, unjust suspicion and infringements of their rights by the police and schools. Those are people who should be protecting them and enforcing those rights. Black parents need to explain to their children just what their rights are when it comes to police and schools. Under these onerous circumstances, families have no option but to educate and protect their children about their rights under the law. Communities must unite and work towards the greater collective good, the nation should collaborate to end systemic violence, injustice, discrimination and sexism 
that has an adverse effect in all areas of society and all individuals, whether they happen to think they are vulnerable to lack of interest and concern when directed towards them. The leadership of ethnic minorities should step in to settle any problems since they are from similar background. They are able to intervene and mediate in delicate situations and probably have a better understanding of many circumstances their kin find themselves in. By taking a proactive stance against adversity, the faith of children, women, ethnic minorities and gays in government, the police and the schools will be restored. If you've enjoyed this episode, kindly subscribe, comment and leave a review. See you in our next episode. Bye for now. For more Rising Above Shadows of Abuse news, head to our Instagram.com page or YouTube.com page forward slash Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. And our email address is Rising Above Shadows of Abuse at gmail.com to interact with us. See you soon. Rising Above Shadows of Abuse podcast with grace of God.